Hey there, DC Comics News fans. It's time for episode number 18 of The Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. And it's time for me to go ahead and share with you my top five picks this week from DC Comics News. My favorite part about all this, if you need a break from all those San Diego Comic-Con headlines, now's a chance to go back to that source material. Because at San Diego Comic-Con, you might hear about television shows, movies, and all sorts of new projects and products. But right here at the Spinner Rack, it's all about comics. Let's go ahead and dig through my top five, hear about what I liked and didn't like, and my scores. And at the end, listen for all the ways that you can tell me your picks and your scores. That's the main reason I love doing this. A great conversation between a bunch of diehard comic fans. Kicking things off this week is issue number one of Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. I really love this great title that's coming out from the team-up of Matt Fraction and Steve Liber. Now, what really nailed it for me was this amazing variant cover by Ben Oliver. I'm not sure if I got Lieber's name right, and who knows, maybe I even got Matt Fraction's name wrong. But Ben Oliver, I think I've got your name right, and I love this variant cover that you offered up. This really cool image of Jimmy loaded down with a helmet and an obscenely long telephoto lens while holding his cell phone and carrying a stack of books underneath his arm, all while trying to snap a selfie as this many-eyed monster with rows of, well, razor-sharp teeth attempts to chomp down on Superman's pal. Now this is a great issue that involves four mini-stories, starting with Joachim Olsen. Hopefully I said that name right. If not, tell me how I said it wrong. I'd like to hear. In the story, It's the Falls That'll Kill You, Jimmy Olsen's great-great-grand-something, as it points out, grandfather, grand-uncle, who's to say when will we know? But in this story, he's facing off with a representative of the Luther family, and he's being told that just because he was there first doesn't mean he actually has the rights to the land, which is why he's being removed, and which is why, sadly, his resistance is met with a firm, stiff tossing off and over the waterfalls where they were arguing. Time passes, Jimmy Olsen's life narrows into focus, and we see him as the pal who fell to earth. Now, he's trying to capture this amazing story about how one of his fans said that they wanted to ask him if he would jump from space down to the ground without using a parachute. Interestingly enough in this story for me was the appearance of Metamorpho in the control room while joined by a group of scientists who are all doing their best to try and keep Jimmy alive. But something changes drastically when Jimmy turns into something that reminds me of his Turtle Boy character and only Superman has the chance to dive in and rescue him. Now, there's a fun little story going on here about a statue that gets destroyed by Superman and his falling pal, Jimmy. That's going to come up later, and it's a detail I think you'll enjoy looking for. Now, our story continues when we see Jimmy with Perry White in the story Force Manure, where the outcome of not only Jimmy's current story, but so many of his stories, has really created problems for the paper. The fact is, insuring him is so expensive, and there's this really great montage where you can see all these different things that Jimmy has 
well, been involved in. And you can imagine just what the cost would be. And yet somehow, he's the only one who's actually making the paper money. This all leads to the decision that Jimmy Olsen can't stay in Metropolis. Instead, he needs to be embedded somewhere. Somewhere very dangerous. Somewhere where the consequences of his actions won't reflect poorly on Metropolis or the Daily Planet as its paper of name and notoriety. So we see Jimmy, now in his next chapter, new in town. And there's Jimmy moving into an unimpressive apartment and speaking with a landlord who's a little bit monotone might be a good word for it. Also, perhaps a little intimidating, but I think it's actually the bat flying in through the window that has Jimmy scared the most, to which the landlord beats it down with a broom and tells Jimmy, hey, uh, whatever you do, no stabbings and uh, no moiter, as it's spelled out. Now, exactly how did Jimmy end up in this city, which when we see him looking out the window has a very familiar skyline, replete with a bat signal, reflected on the clouds as helicopters stream past. Jimmy sarcastically says nice, and then actually talking to himself says, how in the world did I end up here? Oh yeah, and then we see a cover of the Daily Planet with the headline, Who Killed Jimmy Olsen? I like the mystery, I like the introduction that appears to point to these different stories, and the way that they all line up with, I believe, a longer narrative and one that has to do with his history. Now, overall, I love that the art itself reflected this sort of fantastical, almost cartoonish depiction of Jimmy and the way that he not only sees the world of Metropolis and the world at large as a photographer, but also how he's perceived and believed to be by those who actually spend a lot of time paying attention to what he does or devote themselves as followers to his uh, adventures. I love this great cover that's the original with all of these many different facets of Jimmy who have appeared throughout his numerous stories. And I also really enjoyed the way that the art captured not only the lighthearted moments and the cheerfulness, but transitioned so perfectly into this great Gotham environment with the darkness, with all of this sort of gloom and gray and yellowish tint to it that, that feels so much like the, the sort of heavy feeling that's always depicted or expressed when talking or describing Gotham. Now, the great thing about starting off with the first issue is the fact that there's no real history preceding it to compare it against. It's been a while since there was a Jimmy Olsen Superman's pal title that focused just on the story of Jimmy, although I have enjoyed the numerous times when, as a B story or as a longer-running storyline, we got to experience some of the twists and turns that the adventures of Jimmy generally tend to take on, and I was looking forward to this title even before I had the chance to crack it open and read it for myself. I didn't have any problems on the art side, and as I mentioned, right now, when it comes to the story, I've just decided to hop on and enjoy the ride. I really loved this first issue of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and it's why I was happy to give it a stellar 5 out of 5. It met my expectations, and then it exceeded it. And I felt it accomplished this on both the art and the story side. Now, if you've got a different score, remember to listen all the way to the end, and you'll hear how you can let me 
and all of us here know what were your top five picks and if superman's pal jimmy olsen number one was one of those what was your score i'd love to compare notes and see where the differences are that's where the really fun conversation gets started moving right into my second pick is aquaman number 50. now I have a tendency to choose a lot of number ones and also a lot of these what I consider to be milestone issues. When it comes to issues like number 25, 50, 75, 100 and beyond, I feel that there is something of a need to point out when a book is living up to its expectations, when a book is living up to its expectations or when it's doing something that is either different or beyond what those expectations might normally include. And when it comes to issue number 50 of Aquaman, I was intrigued by the fact that many times a story builds to one of these monumental milestone issues. And when it does, the purpose of that issue is to reveal the main character, the lead in this point, or instance, would be Aquaman. But to generally show that he has overcome some great challenge, and it's a chance to sort of let them revel in that, that moment. And that wasn't something that I felt was going on in this issue. In fact, I was really intrigued that it starts out with 1792, and another story that plants the history of, of where the modern day story is taking place, and includes it in a way in which it feels not only important, but it also feels as though it's going to play a larger role, not just in this issue, but later on in this storyline that we get a chance to see. And it has to do with the story of a captain named Moore who was drunk, lost his ship and all the men on it, and in his guilt, built the first lighthouse. Now, it's a story that I, I find is intriguing because it is told by a local law officer who's clearly in an AA meeting and sharing a story that more importantly has to do with the consequences that can be brought on by alcohol and the way that it can change people when those consequences are such a serious impact to not only their lives, but what they were known for and what they want to be known for. And this lighthouse is interesting and sort of a great story point because it's the thing that is being discussed and brought up as a sort of beginning point. And yet lighthouses have a purpose, which is to bring ships home. And in this case, the ship with Aquaman and the old gods and all of his new cast of characters that he's been gathering and bringing along with him in this story from Kelly Sue DeConnick is really well portrayed in this great splash page with a ship, the seas splashing, Aquaman sort of striding and one leg up on the rail of the ship while all of those assembled with him sort of watching cautiously maybe, maybe patiently from behind. Beautiful team here. Um, you've got Robson Rocha and Eduardo, ooh, I hope I say this right, Pansica on the pencils, Danielle Henriquez and Julio Ferreira on the inks, and Sonny Go is a colorist with Clayton Cowles as the letterer. Clayton Cowles, who I recently mentioned another edition of the Spinner Rack, getting a little more attention also for his work here on Aquaman. I love the story of Aquaman coming into town 
and how it brings about a change that is both immediate and also feels as though it will be resonant long after this first appearance. Wonder Woman joins the story and consoles a young man who's brought a gift from his mom, and together they meet Aquaman, who is joined by Tula, and a friendly and very playful little pup. Now the conversation is intriguing here because it centers around the idea of when will Arthur be talking to Mira? And is that an opportunity to maybe have Atlantis help out to provide a place where Arthur's friends can stay? When this is discussed with Arthur, he simply says that Mira will call. And we then get the chance to cut over to the storyline of Mira, who is not only trying to plot the future for Atlantis and by doing so address the concerns of its neediest, but also deal with a council that believes that stability is found through unification and succession, and that if there is to be any sort of future built on that, Mira must be joined, must have a partner, and they expect with the return of Aquaman that she will choose Arthur Curry. Instead, she decides to throw them all for a loop by saying that she will marry her current assistant and a former criminal named Volko. Now, for those who are fans of the Aquaman storyline, Volko is no stranger to you, which is why his loyalty should probably not be that much of a surprise. When we cut back to Arthur, he's, well, he's looking for that new place where he can create a home for his guests. And thankfully, he's got the assistance of local law enforcement who have provided an opportunity to take advantage of the old land where a previous lighthouse was built and where they could all take advantage of the unused land that now surrounds it and build a home of their own. It's around this time that I think a really great twist comes into play, which is when Arthur gets a call from a young man named Jackson Hyde, wearing an outfit with a gold A right around the waist or midline. And the story cuts to a final scene regarding Black Manta and tying into the Year of the Villain main event summer storyline. And for that, I recommend picking up the issue to just see if there's any details that would be specific to you or that larger storyline. I don't want to reveal anything that might be a spoiler, but I love the way this story built up with all of these great moments and then ended with a tie-in that didn't feel like it was an interruption, but also pointed to what I thought was really interesting about this issue, which as a number 50, instead of just having the triumphant return and a sense that uh, glory and revelry would follow, we see in issue number 50 in which Arthur has returned and yet the glorious response, the welcoming embrace that he receives doesn't solve the larger problems that are going to continue need attention or are going to continue to need attention and will continue to be a problem for both Arthur, Mira, and all those around them until these two finally talk. I really like the way that this issue, much like Jimmy Olsen, used history as part of this main storyline, and in doing so, brought up the possibility that we'll get to hear a little bit more about a danger that the original builder of the lighthouse was facing, 
and how it might take on a greater prominence in the future stories of Aquaman. Overall, I was really impressed by this issue, not only for the ways that I felt that it changed not only my expectations, but also the direction of the longer storyline, but the telling of it, including these great references to history before including this great tie-in at the end for the Year of the Villain storyline and the offer that is being made by Lex Luthor. I thought that this could have become very clunky if not handled correctly, but I thought DeConnick did a really wonderful job not only using the past and the present to tell the story, but also to really do a smooth tie-in with the longer Year of the Villain event that appears to be taking over every title this summer. When it comes to Aquaman number 50, I was more than happy to give this book a solid 4.5 out of 5. Maybe that 0.5 still has a little something to do with what I thought I was going to see in issue number 50, but overall, I think it has more to do with what I feel is a growing understanding of what's going on with this book, one that I hope to use when I'm talking about future issues, which I'm looking forward to sharing with you. Now, as everyone knows, we still have to pay the bills, and in order to do that, we need a little time for some ads. We're going to take a quick break, and then come on back with our three remaining stars right here on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Hi everyone, I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast, here every week to talk everything DC, movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. <laughs> no. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so... You can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. And thanks for your patience, everyone. Really appreciate you sticking with us. Coming back after reviewing our first two choices for episode number 18 of the Spinner Rack, we're moving right into number three after taking a quick break from those also important ads. I know I learned something every time I listened to them. I hope you did too. Now my choice for number three on the Spinner Rack was issue number 75 of Batman, from writer Tom King and artist Tony Daniel and Mitch Gerards. Note, Mitch Gerards also helped out on the colors 
with Tomu Mori. And again, Clayton Cowles on the lettering. Clayton Cowles making yet another appearance on the spinner rack as Tom King, Mitch Gerards, and Tony S. Daniel have also done with their work. Simply put, there really is no easy jumping on point when it comes to Batman. Tom King has been on an amazing tear ever since issue number one, and following the events of issue number 50, many fans have been curious to see just what would come about with issue number 75. At the end of issue number 74, also a feature on the DC Comics News Spinner Act, back on episode number 17, the issue ended with one of two men climbing out of a pit where a Lazarus pool and bath had been awaiting to resurrect and revive Martha Wayne. A fist fight between Thomas Wayne from another Earth and Bruce Wayne from this Earth resulted with the gloved hand of one of those two men appearing at the lip of the pit on the final panel and page of issue number 74. And in issue number 75, it's rather quickly revealed the person who came out was Thomas Wayne and not his son Bruce. Now, I really enjoyed the fact that this issue starts with a really great story introduction, two officers responding to a case. But the officers in this case happen to be the Riddler and the Joker. This is, of course, the City of Bane storyline, one that Tom King recently pointed out, not only in interviews but on social media, would be running from issue number 75 through issue number 85, which would be his final issue on Batman before he picks things up with his 12-issue Batman and Catwoman series. Bane has taken over Gotham. It's his city, hence the city of Bane. Great variant cover that I thought was really perfect to set the tone and moves in perfectly to this great intro of Riddler and Joker answering a call and responding to a crime scene, one that they immediately pin on the compulsions of Two-Face. Now, who are they calling back the details of their reports to? Why, that would be the commish, Hugo Strange, who, much like his predecessor, recognizes when it's time to light up the bat signal, which is when Thomas Wayne arrives. I really love this introduction of the scene in Gotham now that Bane has taken control and it's one of the highlights that I enjoyed and I enjoyed the way that this reality mirrors a distraught Bruce who is seeking refuge on a faraway snowy mountaintop from someone who helped him once before but is no longer around. This would have been a perfect moment for Bruce to recover and begin his training immediately and yet there's a twist when it's revealed that who he's seeking is not there, that this is a mugging, somewhat impromptu, of a stranger who recognized that things were not as they should be or as they seemed. And how later we move back to the story of the city of Bane and how not only the Joker, the Riddler, and Batman are involved in bringing down Two-Face, but Gotham Girl has been brought into the fold. And she is playing a role similar to what she once played as an assistant of Bruce's. And yet at the same time, there is a dangerous air to her, something that I really like. 
and I find not only worth watching for the long term, but I also feel is going to make an immediate impact, even in issues number 76 or 77. Tom King's storytelling continues to rely on not only the present pacing and the scenes that are being described in the moment, but also these longer voiceovers of children's stories and fables that have become part of a theme, part of a, a tone or a signature that I feel is reflected in these issues. When it comes to the best of the art, the entire issue is just a really gorgeous depiction of the best, the brightest, the most powerful moments of Gotham and these characters who are living in it. Also, these moments that are just, in some ways, so strange and harrowing and such a twisted version of the Gotham that Bruce has always defended. Now, cutting away from the art and back to the story is the acknowledgement that this is something that Bane is doing very specifically. And it's echoed in the voiceover conversation between Bane and Luther, who is making Bane his famous offer, one that he's made to every villain and even some heroes, anti-heroes, or vigilantes in the longer Year of the Villain storyline. And Bane's reasoning for why he's passing is the fact that in all of the times that Batman has embroiled himself in a larger-than-life, save-the-universe scenario, while he might have been successful, even helpful, if not central, to bringing about the resolution of these large-scale universe-ending events, Bane points out that never has Batman been able to achieve what Bane has achieved. So Bane is asking for a different choice, one that will not only provide Gotham with the protections that he desires, but also prevent the intrusions that Bane knows have always been the downfall of those who've come before him. If this is the beginning of a 10-issue story from Tom King about Bane's dominance over Gotham, I think this is only the beginning, and I feel that so many of the elements that I've had the chance to cover and so many others that I feel should be left to the surprise of the reader make this such a powerful issue. I struggled to find anything wrong with this one. I did not find any weak moments in the story or in the art. And because I believe it's doing a very important job of setting the stage for what the remaining nine issues will be telling about Batman, especially as it goes or ties into the city of Maine. All of the pieces that were being not only placed on the board, but put into motion, are going to play a relevance later that I think will not only be important, but will show their value, even if it's not singular or significant in this immediate first issue of City of Maine. Great work, great design, a great viewing and reading experience are why I'm happy to give Batman number 75 a solid 5 out of 5. Stick around for the end. I can't wait to share with you all the ways to get in touch so you can let me know if your score for Batman number 75 was the same, different, or if there's something a little more interesting that might make for a great conversation. Now my fourth choice for the DC Comics News episode number 18, Spinner Rack. Now my fourth choice for episode number 18 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack is Justice League number 28. Not one of those milestone stories, or at least not one of those milestone issues in which you might expect a milestone story. And yet, just like every issue, 
of this amazing Justice League story being told by James Tynan and this great art team, Javier Fernandez, Daniel Samper on pencils. I hope I said that name right. Fernandez and Juan Alvaron on inks. Hi-Fi handling the colors and Tom Napolitano bringing in the great letters with Jim Chung and Tomu Mori producing a really gorgeous cover. One that not only has a great retail cover, but there's also this absolutely stunning variant featuring the Trinity. Poised, prepared, and ready to get down. And we're lucky enough to have Terry Dodson and Rachel Dodson contribute that great work of art in this really just continually tense, taut, distraught, this amazing story from James Tynan. A history that was established between John Johns and Alexander Lex Luthor. One that has caused John to take many risks, much at the displeasure of the Justice League, and to follow a trail that not only put him in danger once, but even after he's rescued by Kendra, it's one that he won't let go of, one that he continues to pursue, one that has brought him to Lex Luthor, who is making an offer somewhat similar to the one that he's made to so many villains, but his is with a twist. And the twist has to do with the research that Lex's father was engaged in as part of a team working with Vandal Sav. This story, this history, has been a part of the fabric now for many issues in the Justice League. And it's one that has been very impressive when it comes to the way that it has affected not only John, but his relationship with the team, and the decisions that he's begun to make. At the same time, the Justice League is off-planet, seeking out the Anti-Monitor with the help of the Monitor and the World Forge. What they find in the Antimatter universe of Korg is yet another part of Lex Luthor's far-reaching Year of the Villain. And because they are unprepared, the Justice League is struggling to fight back. And it's not the team who are the only ones, along with John and Lex and Kendra, struggling to find a way to deal with the rapid discoveries that quickly put what they think is going on on its heels and forces them to think in the moment, reacting more than they have the chance to act. Starman has a really nice moment with the future possible child of Kendra and John, a young boy named Shane, with the body and facial features of John Johns and the wings of Kentra, who has provided with his possibility a way for Starman to use his abilities and check in on not only where the main branch of the Justice League are in the antimatter universe of Kord, but also where John and Kendra are. The discovery of both is unpleasant, because at the moment he is checking in, Luther, realizing that John will not accept his offer, decides to use advanced technology to invade the mind of John and begin slowly hacking him to use a... In doing so, he breaks down John to a very defenseless sort of former substance of himself. And in doing so, Luther absorbs him into his being and becomes the combination that his father Lionel had always sought, 
a blending of human and Martian DNA in the reflection of the creature and entity known as Perpetua, who has been captured by Luther, and in doing so, who has revealed to Luther that it was the creation of the apex predator that led to the betrayal and replacement of her as a central power by her children, the World Forger, the Anti-Monitor, and the Monitor. And that it is the belief of Luther that with this Apex Predator, he and his team, under this Year of the Villain banner, and expanding beyond the original scope of the Legion of Doom and the Proposal of Doom, will be using this new creature, and I believe potentially many more like Luther, to win a war that for so long has always seemed to be on the side of the good, even in such terrible situations like Infinite Crisis or the more recent uh, Dark Metal and Dark Multiverse storylines. How is this one going to play out? I'm really intrigued to follow, but I love that it didn't have to be in issue 25, 50, 75, or 100 for this great development to reveal itself. And I'm really interested to see just how long James Tyning can sustain this continued threat and the strain that it's putting on the Justice League and its team, and which of the members will be able to hold out and stay with the team, and which, like so many people on the Earth that they have fought to defend, will side with Doom instead of siding with the heroes. I thought this was a really great issue, one I thought was a masterful example of James Tynan's storytelling and also of the great art team that have made this such a compelling story to continue to read. And it's one that really captured all of the best moments for me in the story and the glorious art that from splash panel to close up revealed not only this great display of colors and shading, but also really fine detailed pencil and ink work and it's one of the reasons why I was more than happy to give Justice League number 28 a solid 5 out of 5. I can't wait to hear your score. Stay tuned to the end so you can make sure you hear all the ways that we make that possible for you. Now, for my fifth and final choice, is the first issue of Collapser. A really interesting and, I think, exciting new story coming out from Mikey Way and Sean Simon. It's got some really different and engaging and eye-catching art from Ilias Kyriazis. I really hope I said that name correctly. Chris Peter on the colors, letters by Simon Bolin, and the cover by Ilias Kyriazis. Again, I hope I said that right. If I said it wrong, please use all those ways at the end to reach out to us. Let us know. I'd like to get it right if I can. Now when it comes to story, Collapser opens with a great mystery. But before you get there, there is a really cool retail cover followed by an absolutely perfect variant cover. One that I really enjoyed and one that I thought was a lot of fun. I really liked this idea of this young man holding open his trench coat on the main retail cover with this black circle swirling light around it. And the variant cover, holding a sword that's glowing, sparks leaping out of his chest, standing on an asteroid in the expanse of space, was perfectly mirrored by the introduction of the mystery. A body found on a planet, decaying, 
with a substance on it. Something that reminds me of a symbiote from over at the Marvelous Competition. And one that clearly has similarly nefarious properties, which we uncover when Liam James awakens from a terrible dream with voices in his head and holding a replica or some sort of ceremonial sword at best, maybe just one that he picked up as a collectible for a character in a sci-fi fantasy or comic series. What woke him and what causes him to leap to his feet and eventually answer his door while wearing just a pair of boxers or boxer briefs and holding his sword is a package delivered from Galaxy Express, one that he simply doesn't have time to look at because Liam has to run off to his job where he works at an age-caring center doing things like changing dressings on wounds, helping people who need to use the bathroom but can't get out of bed, and unfortunately not able to live up to promises that he makes, like wanting to play a game of chess with his favorite resident slash patient. How does Liam figure out to balance the rest of his life? He DJs. He goes to clubs where he can put on unbelievably loud music that drowns out the noise of the voice in his head and in this instant he is putting on a show and performing as a dj in front of a really important figure in the music scene one who could change his career and potentially allow him to leave behind his daytime life of taking care of the elderly and the aging but there's a power outage and his moment is gone, which leaves Liam to brood, anger not only his friend, but his girlfriend, and stomp off on his own, only to come home to a discovery that was inside of his box, and now has taken over not only his apartment, but his entire life. I really love this story concept, the idea of the mystery, and this young man who doesn't have a perfect life, has plenty of problems, even points out that the gift, which is said to be from his mother, is a woman who left when he was young and has never really been a part of his life. What sort of gift she could be leaving him, he won't really understand, even after he's had the chance to experience the amazing powers and properties it presents. Along the way, there are a few other details that might point to just what sort of powers this gift from his mom might include and also just how far away from the place he calls home they might take him. The art was really quite gorgeous. I love the way it captured not only the presence of Liam but the world that he exists in and the way that world goes from the fantastical space set mystery at the beginning to the gritty, somewhat horrifyingly ugly, pale yellow, modern existence of his day job, and then back to the fantastical twist that begins to cast its own sort of tint on his modern life and present reality. I really feel like Collapser has so many different ways that it can go, and I'm really excited to see what this great story writing team of Mikey Way and Sean Simon can do with is a very talented art team ready to make their mark and 
create a very signature and significant design and comic book. One that will be, I believe, a staple and a standout among DC's Young Animal line. And that's going to go ahead and bring us to a close to episode number 18 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Wherever you might be listening now, you can always find DC Comics News and DC Comics News Spinner Rack on all the major podcast platforms you might enjoy. Whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, all you have to do is find us by name, DC Comics News, subscribe, and then rate and review. I think we're always worth five stars. But if you've got a reason why I should think different, I'd love to hear it. And more importantly, if there's something I can improve, I know we'd love to hear just how we can do it so we can get a five-star production that gets your five-star rating. When it comes to social media, you can always find us on the major platforms. And if you've got a minor one that you know we're at, let us know. When it comes to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube, where I know we've already got an established presence, just use the at symbol and tag us DC Comics News. That's at capital DCC, O-M-I-C-S, capital N, E-double-S. I'm Seth Singleton. I've been your host for episode number 18 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. If I can leave you with one last message, it's to say thanks for being with us today. Can't wait to hang out with you next episode. And as we like to say here at DC Comics News, read more comics. Thanks again, folks. Can't wait to spend another episode spinning the spinner rack with you.